do I have everything? Um, all right, it looks like I'm good to go. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Some Sanity with Morgan Zeggers, where in this crazy world where everything seems worse and worse by the week and you look at the news and you're like, this is insane. Uh, this is at least a nice little hub and opportunity for us to seek sanity and find that common ground of, of what is even going on in the country and the world today. Um, wow. <laughs> I, it's kind of funny because I think back to the times of maybe like 2016. I mean, in 2015, I was even thinking like, wow, things are getting a little weird. Like, could it get any worse than it is right now with this, this growing wokeness and this, this growing weird leftism that we're seeing? And, and then I remember thinking in 2016, wow, I was so naive. And then now look at us, just even how much has changed from 2020 to 2021 and specifically actually January, 2020, sorry, my phone's on January, 2020 to, uh, what we are now, June, 2021. So much has changed just in all of our lives. We've lost so many people. And, um, I think most importantly, a lot of faith has been lost in the system, in the people that represent us and the people that, um, we really honestly just put our faith into a great example would be Dr. Fauci. I was looking through and just kind of reminiscing on some of the things that have happened with Dr. Fauci. And two things really came to mind uh, in the light of this email scandal where over 3,000 Fauci emails were just released publicly uh, because of a FOIA request. And so now 3,000 emails that were sent or received by Dr. Fauci from early COVID times in like January 2020, all up till today, they, they've been released. And now the American people can see that what he was saying privately versus publicly is, is quite different. Specifically, if you guys haven't heard yet about the masks, he was saying that no, masks literally don't work at all. Like the only time they might be effective at spreading or at stopping the spread of some things is if maybe a COVID positive patient has a mask on and they sneeze and or cough and those larger um, parts of potential spread are stopped by the mask material. But he admitted in the emails that no, like it, the virus is small enough to clearly and easily fit through and pass through any store-bought mask material AKA the same kind that we've been forced to be wearing uh, for over a year now. So it's infuriating. The other real big revelation is just the fact that he was really scrambling to figure out, you know, America's involvement and the actual story of a potential man-made virus. And if American taxpayer dollars went into it, um, most specifically is that he had experts reaching out even as early as January, 2020, trying to communicate to him specifically there's i think the scripps institute uh research director or scripps research institute director I, I can't remember how it's named they reached out to fauci and said listen my whole team has been looking into this and studying the genome and the genome is uh inconsistent with the expectations of uh of uh the findings that science would, would show on this of evolutionary theory and it was quite fascinating to see. And so to know that as he's getting these really important emails, even people saying, listen, the numbers from China are looking incredibly fake. Uh, they're looking like they are lowering the numbers of deaths and cases on purpose, perhaps to give an appearance of strength uh, compared to the rest of the world and, and to seem as if they know what they're doing, like classic communist propaganda. Fauci's getting all these things and then he's literally going and telling Americans, don't worry, this isn't man-made and kind of playing into that idea that anybody question, questioning that is a conspiracy theorist. So yay, look at us now. But the two things that I was really reminiscing on of just like how gross and weird our society is these days is that, you know, now this man, his, his evil ways are being exposed. Same thing with Cuomo, the way Cuomo was. And in May 2020, there there was underwear being sold by by liberal companies, like woke companies in LA were selling underwear for women that had Fauci and Cuomo's name printed on the front as if it was like sold by Victoria's Secret when they put the little slogans on the front of them. Fauci and Cuomo's names. And then now those are two of the, the most disturbing men in terms of their behavior and leadership during COVID. And then there was the other thing of 28,000 people signed a petition in 2020 to get Dr. Fauci named the sexiest man alive.
Yeah. So um, I, I think part of this, what it shows is that when things were really scary in the beginning of COVID, so many people that, you know, definitely are naive and, and they would like to trust government and authority and they don't understand history proves that you really shouldn't ever. Um, they got scared and they wanted a sense of security and a sense of safety. And Dr. Fauci kind of provided that, that seemingly neutral perspective. You know what I mean? Like he seemed like he wouldn't be the political one. He seemed like he was the expert that we could all trust in this really trying time. And, and in reality, it grew into something where he had massive influence, massive power, and he ended up abusing all of it. And, and I just did a video for the first, which I just signed on to. I'm really excited. I'm going to be doing two videos per week for them. Um, and doing some other commentating. So it's, it's just kind of like a fun side thing and I'm really excited, but I did a video for them where I, I was just kind of talking about how F Fauci's behavior isn't just a massive disappointment and a massive shock to Americans and the fact that he let us down, but it could be one of the reasons and probably one of the main reasons why a communist regime, China, the communist party of China, the CCP created a pandemic level virus spread it around the world, whether it was leaked accidentally or purposefully uh, leaked is really the, the next question for us to focus on moving forward. Um, but they, they then spread it and then they then covered it up and lied about their own numbers and lied about it being spread from person to person in the beginning. And now they're covering it up with propaganda that was quickly eaten up and, and then spread out thanks to American politicians on the left, American media and American leaders that we thought we could trust like Dr. Fauci. And so it's like this terrible cycle of what the heck have we just been put through as a country? And I think so many people are going to come out of this saying, I don't think I'll ever trust a government bureaucrat again, or at least I can, I can hope that that's going to be the lesson. And that really should be the lesson that they take out of this. Um, but we'll see how many people actually learn the lesson or are they going to continue to be weirdly obsessed with government leaders? It's it, who knows, but, um, I did a little rant there. <laughs> My bad. Um, I'm here for a very fun episode, I think. I am going to dedicate this episode to talking about something that I used to not really talk about. Uh, I I went to American University. It's the number one most politically active school in the country. It's 90% liberal. And I had quite the college experience, and I don't really talk about it. And and what happened is I started going and speaking for uh, Turning Point USA at their their chapter events, their smaller ones. And so when I was in those more intimate conversations with the students and I'm talking to them, I would just, you know, tell a, a little story about how, oh, yeah, I was on campus one time and this happened. And I realized like, oh, my gosh, these are really weird stories. And so I figured I could, you know, mash them all up, put them together and, and make a really interesting episode. So um, if you're new here, welcome to Some Sanity. I so far, I've been doing new episodes every Wednesday, and I have just moved into my new house. I, I moved to Texas, uh, as some of you guys know, in October 2020. I spent all of COVID in New York, and then as soon as I got to Texas for a speech, I canceled my flight back to New York, and I said, screw it, I cannot go back there. <laughs> and so I just literally, like, it was just this flip of a switch of, I, I cannot, why would I bring myself back to that place when it's been, it's been horrible? Um and, and I just canceled my flight and I found an apartment in uh, Texas. And now I, I've spent the last few months kind of looking for a house because I, I am very financially responsible. I'm a conservative, you know what I mean? I don't want to waste money. So that means for the most part, buying, not renting. And I just got into my house. So I haven't really been doing the episodes yet, but I have fun news. I'm going to really be committing to this soon. And so instead of just sporadic weekly Wednesday podcasts, I think I'm going to be moving soon into two episodes a week at least, and then one live stream session that will turn into an episode if you can't make the actual live stream. So I'm really excited for that. And, and I'll have more details soon. But for everybody who's been listening to every podcast and on Wednesdays you're like where is Morgan um it's because I'm just running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to get all this house stuff done and and settled in so that I could just get back to my regular schedule and um not only that but expand the content production so I'm really excited um with that 
I have to get better at this. I have to remember to just ask the newbies, just subscribe to my YouTube because I put the video version up. Or if you like the audio when you're driving or whatever you're doing, it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And um, if you guys could leave a review, I'd really appreciate that. Most importantly, though, I'm curious to see what everybody's background is. And so in the review or in the comment section, whatever platform you're listening on, if you could leave the five-star review if you can, but then include in the text of your review or comment where you went to school and what that school experience was like. So was it very liberal or were you one of those unique experiences where it was just neutral, which, you know, seems crazy these days. Imagine a neutral college campus, neutral, or were you somebody who went to a school like Liberty or Hillsdale, um, one of those conservative schools like College of the Ozarks where I've spoken before. I'm really curious to see what everybody's experience was or did you not go to college? Did you go to a trade school? Did you go and get right into your career field because I honestly think college is a scam. And so I tell that to pretty much every college student. Uh, but if you did, if you have your experience of what you did outside of high school and how you got started in your career, I would love to hear it and uh, definitely share it in the comments. Also, I think what I'm going to do, because the comments are so funny sometimes, the comments and the reviews, um, every week I've decided I'm going to pick my favorite review and I'll give it a highlight in the next episode. So if you leave a funny review or um, just a funny remark and it's my favorite, I will give you a shout out. How about that? <laughs> um, but with that being said, let's get into what it was like for me to be a conservative on a college campus in America during one of the most divisive times in our country, really as President Trump was coming to office. I mean, what a fantastic moment in our country. And I really do believe it was a great moment. People have their views on it, but um, that was a fantastic era. And I am grateful that we are experiencing the way that we are right now because, hey, we weren't born in the wrong decade. I know a lot of people say that. Everybody is born in a time where they are supposed to be. Uh, and so we really need to just take on whatever challenges are ahead of us and, and do it as happy warriors, right? So uh, to give you guys some background, if you haven't listened to the previous podcasts, um, for those of you guys who don't know, I'm from upstate New York. It's very rural. It's very traditional, conservative. Just It's more like, think like Texas, where it's it's farms and, and fields and beautiful landscapes, and it's outdoorsy. It's, it's kind of country. That's what it was like for me. It's Texas, but more mountainous and cold. <laughs> That's how I describe upstate New York. And many people don't realize that. They think that it's just like New York City. But if you look at like the political map of New York State, it's red on top with maybe like a few of the smaller cities being small, light blue. Light blue. Uh, but then New York City, those five boroughs and the counties that cover actual New York City, they're deep, deep blue. They're run by by radicals, whether it's just liberals or leftists. And those political people really control the entire state. It's it's an absolute shame. So that's why I had decided to leave. Um, but when I went from American, or when I went from upstate New York, where it was like that, and that it was that conservative lifestyle, or at least Americana, like small town vibe, and went to my college, it was just such a shakeup. And, and so that first thing is what I want to talk to you guys about, of that transition of me going from my lifestyle where I grew up in a military family, conservative area, and then went to the most politically active campus in the country that was 90% a population of identifying liberals. So identifying liberals, again, not just like, uh, they lean left. It was, you know, 90% of them identify as on the left. It was, it was quite fascinating for me to experience that transition. And the first thing that I want to talk to you guys about is just how much the Overton window in the country has shifted. And so in 2015, when I was that age, Morgan in 2015, graduating high school and going to orientation at American and then transitioning in the fall to go to school there, I hope you guys realize the words like misogynist, bigot, xenophobic, all of these words that are just casual slurs thrown at conservatives every single day now, those were not in everyday liberal and leftist language at the time. And so it was really just becoming something that was normal political rhetoric. This was not a tactic that they really used to use uh, with with such normalcy. It's kind of fascinating. Literally, now it's 2021. It's used in almost every sentence, every political um, message from the left. But back then, Morgan went to orientation at American University and 
I, I was just shocked because the, the first thing at orientation is this like 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. diversity training where all these words are presented to us. And I remember not even understanding how to pronounce misogynist or bigot or xenophobe or any of those things. And I remember looking at bigot and I'm like, bigot? Bigot? B-I-G-O-T. And I mean, this is also embarrassing. When emojis came out when I was in high school, I also pronounced them emojis. And so those came out when I was like a freshman or a sophomore in high school. But I, I already have pronunciation problems. You guys probably have noticed I maybe have mispronounced things before. Uh, but when, when bigot was first a thing and you're starting to see it pop up on social media and you don't hear it yet really in my... In, normal political conversations, I didn't even know how to pronounce that dang word. And now look at it. It's just said on a daily basis by the left. So that was fascinating. The other thing though, to show the, that shift of the Overton window of like how weird our politics have gotten in such a short amount of time is pronouns. Okay. So I, I think about this all the time. I had never been asked about pronouns other than like in French class when, when we're learning how the, you know, like what it means to identify a person or how to, to talk about a person, uh, like English class pronouns, French, like language class, when you're learning about a, a language and how to do basic things in, in a sentence, that's what pronouns were to me. And that's what they used to be five years ago. And so when I went to American before this diversity training, it, the first day of orientation, you all sit in little circles, right? And and we had these pieces of paper and we were supposed to write our basic information in and then read it out loud to the, the class, the, the orientation circle to introduce ourselves. And the sections were like, Morgan, like name, fill in the blank, hometown, fill in the blank, major uh, hobbies that we like, fun facts about ourselves, you know, the usual like uncomfortable, weird stuff that nobody wants to be doing. But next to the name... There's this, there's this section that says pronoun. And I'm like, I was just genuinely confused. Like I, I genuinely it had no idea it was about politics, had no idea it was about wokeness, had no idea it was about my gender or whatever it is or anything. And I'm like, pronoun, what are they asking? And then immediately the first thought in my head is, well, they're not asking me to like say she or her, like that they're not asking for like my pronoun pronouns. So what could they be asking? Like, clearly I'm not getting this. And so I'm like, should I ask somebody? But this seems kind of dumb. So I did it. And so first I pull out my phone and I just Google like pronoun. Cause maybe I'm like missing, like maybe I'm not remembering what a pronoun is or something. And I look and, and she, he, his, hers, they, them, they're, they're popping up of like what a pronoun is. And I go, Hmm, well that can't, there's, they're not asking me that. Like, what am I missing here? And so then I'm, I'm trying to peek around to other people's pages. I'm like, do, 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 do. And I try and see over what she's doing. And I remember just the, the confusion of seeing that the girl next to me actually wrote she slash her on the pronouns. And, and what I'm, I, Right now, people are like, duh, like it's a pronoun, Morgan, you should know this. But back then, when it's never really been talked about before, when I've never heard anybody discuss this ever, and I was pretty, I would say, in tune with American politics, I was like, what in God's name are they asking us to say here? Clearly, I'm a girl. Clearly, it's she, hers. What are we talking about, people? So it's almost like it's it's the idea that these little seeds that are planted on a college campus that seem just, oh, you know, it's the college experience. They're all weird there. They're all woke there. It's now transformed into being in just everyday average American society. And, and that's because things don't end once you graduate from college. You're given those values and then you take those values and, and that political thought and behavior into the real world when you become a career professional. And so you're taking that into your career field. You're taking it into your families, into your communities. And, and look at it now, every celebrity and every leftist politician, everybody who is, you know, committing right think and nobody who would dare to commit wrong think has pronouns. Even Instagram today, I was editing my Instagram bio and, and pronouns was uh, a section that I can fill out to be displayed on my Instagram profile. So, so again, back then, literally just five years ago, this was not a normal thing to be asking people and look at it now, massive shift, massive victory in the culture wars for the left. Um, the next thing I want to talk to you guys about is some class experiences. Uh, a lot of conservatives have um, gone through situations with professors, right? We've gone through situations where we feel really uncomfortable um, in in the educated or in the in the curriculum 
sphere. You know what I mean? Um, so the first one, <laughs> I have a funny story. So one of my speech writing professors, the speech writing professor, I, his, I can't remember his name, but he was Al Gore's speech writing, uh, speech writer back when he was vice president and when he was running for president. And so of course he leaned to the left. I mean, it was Al Gore. And, and I remember, I mean, it's kind of funny because like, I don't know if who doesn't know this, but I, I speak quite often now. I speak at CPAC 2020 and 2021. Uh, I speak really every month at least. I'm, I'm going to a college campus or a national conference. It's I get paid to speak now. Like it's it's a basic thing. It's a big part of my life now. And and at the time, I really didn't like it, and I didn't have confidence in college to do that kind of stuff. But I really liked it, and and I I won like the speech contest in class for that class, and my professor, I opened up to him that I was conservative and, and how I had Im ambition to get more involved in the conservative side of things. And, and his advice to me through all of it was that I didn't speak intelligently when I wrote my speeches, when I prepared them, and then when I delivered them. And I would argue that I, I like it like that because my feedback that I get now, even from this podcast, is that I don't talk down to people and that um, I speak like a normal person <laughs> and, and that it's more relatable and it's more understandable. And so I think back to all the time to that guy, especially when I'm getting paid for my speeches. I, I think back to how he told me to sound more intelligent when I talk. And <laughs> um, I, I, I still think of that as just such a really great memory. But that was just more so of like, that was nice because he never made me feel like an idiot for my politics. Maybe he just thought I sounded dumb. Who knows? Um, but the next thing I want to talk about is the idea that even if professors try and teach something, are the students just freaking too gone, too woke, too, too indoctrinated at that point to even care if facts are being presented? And a really great experience for me in this was a macroeconomics class where our professor, I, th I think his name is Professor Lynn, so great. He was, he was one of those guys where in the middle and, and somebody who doesn't push politics onto you, it's, it's so nice. And it's such a breath of fresh air because he, he just taught in a way that kind of brought people together, no matter maybe what our views were outside of the classroom. But there, there was this one lesson that really stuck with me and it showed that, you know, we can make an amazing numbers and statistics and, and data driven argument for a policy. And they, some people will just never care. <laughs> and, and so we had a whole day, a whole class about uh, price floors and price ceilings. And for the price floors, we were talking about minimum wage as an example. And he, he spent an hour, and in the beginning of the class, I should say, so in the beginning of the class, he said, uh, okay, you guys, who plans on voting you know, in the primary coming up? Because upcoming at this time, I think it was 2016, and the primary for the Democratic Party was just about to happen between Bernie and Hillary. And so the big you know, debate of Bernie or Hillary was uh, on campus. And I remember my, my professor said, like, who's going to be voting, blah, blah, blah. And, and eventually it was kind of this huge wave of support for Bernie Sanders, expressed by the class like a bunch of whoops and hollers and all that stuff and he was like okay okay i see i see we got some you know supporters in the crowd and it was hundreds of students like 200 or so and he goes today we're going to be talking about price floors what happens when you set a price floor uh too high and the impact that that has on society <laughs> and so i was think of like making the clearest cut examples and and case for why you should never set a price floor too high, specifically minimum wage and how impactful and how negatively impactful it is on the working class specifically. And so something that's like supposed to help the working class, it's so damaging to them. And, and so he does this whole hour long thing, right? And he shows like, what happens when you set it an hour, a dollar above the market level? What happens when you do $2 above, $3 above? And then he goes, okay, what happens when you just go completely out of whack and set it at $15 an hour, which is well, like half of the market rate. And of course it meant like the falling apart of society basically where, where the working class really does suffer the most. And they're the ones that lose the job. They're the ones who, who lose the ability to provide and take care for, of themselves. They lose the job opportunities and it impacts them the worst. And it, it, it really hit me. It freaked me out because I was like, this policy is so close to being passed. It's, it's so embraced by the left. And I'm seeing my professor show this really great clear cut example of, of why it's such a bad uh, policy. And then at the end, 
He goes, okay, you guys, you saw me make this argument. You saw me show what happens when this policy, the, you know, the fight for 15 actually gets implemented. Now, how many of you still plan on voting for Bernie Sanders, who is like the biggest champion of this piece of policy? And he just kind of like hung his head because as that happened, the response from the class was just this massive, again, wave of whoops and hollers for Bernie from like the 2016 era Bernie bros, if you guys remember those. <laughs> and so like he made this beautiful one hour argument. It's completely forgotten because they're still so just excited to vote for their political candidate that they thought would be more woke and whatever, you know, dream that they wanted to achieve. And, and that was a good lesson for me of, of we really have to make a stronger argument and find other ways to reach people than just presenting them the core facts because sometimes the facts just don't matter to people when it comes to politics uh, and college campuses can really show that. And so I, I have a feeling, you know, I hope that a lot of those people did um, grow up and mature to realize the impact that that idea would have. Uh, but I guess time will tell there. Uh, the the last thing that I had, oh boy, the last like really negative college experience that I usually talk about is my political research professor who I had talked to the week prior to the incident uh, about how I was Republican. And I shared that with him. I told him I'm, I'm really involved in my county GOP. I do all this stuff for the party. It's, it's really fun. You know, I might run for office. I did in upstate New York, which <laughs> was like, a total mess, but I was just a young little baby, a young little Padawan. Um, and I was just so inspired and I hated Cuomo. And so I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. Um, but I told him about all that. And so it was clear that I was Republican. I said it multiple times to him in our conversation. And I just, I left that class that day feeling so happy because it was kind of nice to be able to just talk about my politics with, with him and not feel embarrassed in that way, because there is that stigma that comes with it. And what do you know, the next, the next week, I was sitting in class. I'm wearing like cowboy boots and this like denim spring dress. So I looked I looked a little more conservative than most in the classroom. And my, my laptop has all these conservative stickers on it, right? Like American flags and stuff. And I had a ton of like future female leader stickers at the time. Um, and they're like a conservative uh, website and, and they do a bunch of merch and, and blogs and stuff. So I was very much into that. And uh he sits in the class and he goes, okay, you guys, today we're going to talk about stereotypes and like what assumptions uh, we can make in politics when we're, we're studying people and we're trying to understand patterns. And he was like, so, so let's look at an example. What are some fair assumptions to make about why people in the South vote Republican? And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, this is more intimate classroom. It's it maybe like 20 students or less. And so I'm like, this is just uncomfortable because I'm clearly Republican. And so I was like, what's going to happen? And this is a, another example of what happens when Twitter warriors and social media warriors are put in public. Do they really have the balls to say what they want to say and what they think? Or do they even know what they think? Are they only able to like make a sassy tweet? And that's really all they can do. So the professor says this, and um, at first the class, you could tell that they were like, mm, a fun question, like I know the answer, but all of them were scared to raise their hand and actually be the first one to say it. And seeing that, I was like, you son of a gun. Let's see, like who's got the guts to say it first? Like wh who's gonna be the first one to do something that's like qu controversial? And I'm not gonna say anything. And so I had no guts at the time. And so I'm just waiting and waiting. And eventually someone like shyly raises their hand. Right. And, and they go, mm, well, you know, there's a lot of immigrants by the border in the South and they don't really like immigrants. And so that like makes them want to vote Republican. <laughs> and, and I was like, and my professor, I literally, I thought my professor, because I didn't know it was going to be like super weird. My professor literally looks at the person and goes, yes, yes. And then goes into this little spiel about why that was correct. And I'm like, ah, they think that they think that that's why, why people vote Republican because we don't like immigrants and we live near immigrants in the South. And so we vote Republican. Uh, so I was like, okay. Oh gosh. And then the professor goes, 
what's the second reason? And I was like, wait, what? There's only two? Like, uh, what is the other reason then? And so I'm like, okay, what's the next person going to say? And I'm looking around and what do you know? Again, everybody's like a little nervous, but they're a little more confident. So they're like, kind of like, mm, and they've got the woke faces on now. And, and so he picks some next guy and, and the guy goes race. And what do you know? My professor goes, yes. And he literally just validates those two reasons as the only reasons. He goes on a little spiel about why the second reason is also correct. And then he moves on to the next lesson about something completely else. Those were the two reasons why people in the South vote Republican to my professor. And and one thing he'd be like, what? It was just one professor, Morgan. It's just one story. It's like, no, I'm sorry. There's 20 students in the room. All those 20 students were supposed to be paying this guy to teach us about American politics and political research. So now after knowing that that's his take on an entire political party, I'm supposed to be fine knowing that I'm literally paying this guy thousands of dollars to teach me his expertise on a subject. And that on top of that, all of these students are in this classroom now walking away. They're now walking away with this terrible lesson and they're going to go off into their lives with this lesson in their minds, thinking that it's right because they just paid an expert professor to teach them it. And then if you think that on a grander scale, how many classrooms are this happening in? Like there's thousands of college campuses across the country, right? This is just one college campus, 20 students. But when you multiply that by thousands, considering how many times this is happening, it's it's quite damaging. And so it was very frustrating to me. And that's really the one time where I've ever, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I, I had no guts at the time and no like conservative allies, I guess I could say, to like make me feel like I should speak up or, or start rallying on campus or anything. And so I just like closed my binder and left after that because it wasn't anything of like, I'm not going to sit here with this terrible professor. It was more of like, why am I letting this guy teach me expertise about political research when this is his evaluation of half of the country of an entire demographic of people. Um, it, it's not exactly the expertise that I'm looking for. I would hope that somebody can provide more critical thought, uh, in his lessons. And, and it was that, it was almost like a detachment for me of like, what is the college experience? If I'm supposed to trust this and pay into this system in order to get, uh, experience for my job and in order to become somebody who can be successful in my own career, this is the kind of guy that I'm paying to teach me. So I, it, it, again, it goes back to like, what is the role of college? Are you picking the right major? Are What majors are pointless? I honestly think majors like political science are, are completely useless. If you want to work in politics, major in something that gives you a skill to then work in the political industry. You don't just work in politics. You are either a communications director where you have to manage media, reach out to media outlets. You can be a production leader where you are literally running the behind the scenes of a production studio where you're editing things, you're creating things, you're filming, you're shooting, you're, you're doing all these things. You have to have skills to work in politics. And so instead of studying political science where you're going to go to school and then have professors do what my political research professor told me in that classroom. Instead, you're getting skills to go out and, and thrive in the political industry. You have to think of it like that. Uh, and, and so that's my advice to a lot of students when they ask me what they should major in. Um, for those asking, I made majored in communications, law, economics, and government. It was called CLEG, and then I got a minor in accounting, but I didn't get one extra class to like qualify for the major. And I said, screw it. I don't need a stupid piece of paper and I don't want to pay. What was it? It would have been like $4,500 for that last class to get the major. I don't really care about, you know, just the symbol of the piece of paper when I've already gotten the full education, basically, except for one class. Uh, so I just said, nah, I don't need it. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how I roll. Um, let's see. What are some other things though? Oh, you want to know what I wanted to do? Um, yeah, that's what I'll talk about too. Before I get into some of the more like campus culture, radical experiences that I had, like the protests and stuff, um, I wanted to talk to you guys about just my theory on the ridiculousness of college classes. And maybe I'll do a whole episode on this. But if, for example, at American, they, they tell you, that the goal is for you to become a well-rounded individual. And so that's why they have this gen ed program, right? And so you have to take poetry classes. There's an 
an arts bubble and so you have to take so many classes in the arts bubble you have to take so many classes in the like english literature bubble you have to take so many classes in the science bubble and so here i am at american i want to work in veteran services that's my end goal veterans services and veteran advocacy is my end like post-graduation goal but i'm being forced to take a painting class a poetry class a chemistry class and so on and so on and so on until I reached that gen ed requirement fulfillment. And then I could finally start qualifying for and putting like freeing up my schedule to take the classes that would teach me the skills for my career. Now, if you look at the math of this, of course, you're paying for like the regular tuition, the regular housing and board, room and board, all that stuff. And that's thousands of dollars. But when you look at it on a a per credit basis, at American, it was like $1,400 per credit. The painting class that I was required to take because everybody had to take an art class was $1,400 per credit, four credits. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. The poetry class, I was required to take three credits times $1,400. That's a lot of money. All of these things, if you look at it financially, Do you realize that you could just take a painting class off of campus in the real world for like $100, $50? You could just buy paint material and watch YouTube, learn how to paint. You could hire literally a private painting tutor and probably pay less than you paid for going to some stupid basic painting class in college. And they tell you, It's just, it's to create a well-rounded individual for society. But guess what? It's literally only to get it so that you have to stay for the four years and they get you to stay at that school as long as possible to pay that full four years of tuition. If you can graduate a year early or two years early, because it technically is possible if you have those gen eds kind of taken care of from, from high school or college credit that you got in high school, Oh boy, you can get out of there quick. And that's not a good moneymaker for schools. You guys, come on. And so they really want to make it so that you have to stay there as long as possible. And the goal is to probably, I would say, beef up that gen ed program requirement that you're supposed to fulfill so that by your, you're like in your end of sophomore year, finally starting to take your classes that have to do with your actual career. Newsflash people, this is not about just getting a degree. Oh, you have to go to college. It's about becoming an expert and an educated person in your career field. There are a million other ways to do that for pretty much most jobs in America. Other than going to some liberal arts school where half of your experience is being forced to overpay for classes about things that you could just do in your everyday life because they're selling it to us as becoming well-rounded. If you want to learn poetry, read a poetry book. Go to a poetry club. If you want to learn how to paint or do arts, go to an art class after your classes are done for your major. But don't fall into the idea of like, oh, it's so cool. Like, yeah, like I'm taking a volleyball class. I'm taking a volleyball class and then like a study break, like in high school especially. They sell it to us as if like, oh, it's cool to like be able to like get extra study halls because, you know, like I just fit extra study halls in and now I get to leave school earlier today. Like I remember that being such a thing when in reality, what you should be trying to do is instead of wasting an hour of your day every day in study hall, you should be trying to get classes put in your schedule that qualify for college credit so that when you go into a college, you have as much college credit as possible. And then that fills up your gen ed requirements from that stupid college that's going to make you do the gen ed requirements. And then instead of doing the gen ed requirements in high in college, they're already fulfilled from the work that you did in high school. And now you can enter college, get right into the classes that focus on your major and finish them, graduate early or do a double major if you want to. But if you start to realize that this kind of all stems back from the idea of we aren't even preparing our students in high school to prepare properly for this process and to understand that Really, you're just wasting time and being inefficient with the way that the system is telling you how to go about school right now. Perhaps we'd have some changes. Maybe it all starts with the guidance counseling system. I don't know. But once I started to see that, it was frustrating. My experience was that basically I had military family support. GI Bill stuff comes in from American 
And I was basically told after I decided to go to American at a certain price that, oh no, wait, they miscalculated and I have to pay X amount to go for like the fourth year that I wasn't going to qualify for a fourth year of it. And I was like, oh, then I can't, I can't afford to go here. Cause like I, I was paying if whatever I owed, I was taking that on. And so it, it had to be a very smart decision on my end. And so when they massively increased the amount that it would cost for a last year, I freaked out and I didn't know what to do. So I realized that a bunch of my high school credits that I had taken, whether it was like AP French or, or higher math, I think I took like, I can't even remember what I used to take, but I took a bunch of AP classes. I took a bunch of college credit classes. I took an extra language that it would qualify as college credit, all these things, AP English. I loved that. But those classes transferred into college credit classes because I scored high enough on the tests when I, you know, tested out. And I apparently never transferred those credits into my college system and they would have worked. And so what I had to do is reach out to my high school, ask them for my transcripts and the information. And then I went to my guidance counselor in college and I said, listen, I just found this out. I can't afford a fourth year. I need you to help me. I had this idea. What if I had these things transfer in and they covered these required classes? And then if I took all these classes and then did these night classes and then did this weekend class every so often, I think I could graduate in three years. And she looked at me and her her reaction wasn't like, oh, dang, what a hustler. Like, look at you go. You you figured it out. Yes. Like this would work. Cause that's what I just wanted. I just needed her to confirm that it would work. Cause no matter how much work it was, I was going to get it done. It's fine. And she looked at me and she was like, mm, Morgan, are you sure you really become the person you're meant to be in your fourth year of college? Excuse me. Now you guys, Again, this is a simple transaction. So she's telling me that the person I meant to be is going to be discovered in my fourth year of college after I just told her that it's $70,000 for me to go for a fourth year and I can in no way afford that. And that I did all of this work to figure out how I could graduate a year early and her response is, are you sure? I feel like with an extra 70 grand, you could really become the person you're meant to be. What? It's a transaction for us because we're a consumer of this. It's a transaction for them. They're trying to sell us this. They're trying to keep us in the system paying as long as possible. So even I'm, even though I'm telling her like, no, this would strap me with debt for decades. She's telling me, mm, girl, are you sure? They could care less. Couldn't care less. Why do I keep messing that up? They couldn't care less, you guys. And so... Yes, we have to pay more attention in college about how, how we're focusing on ourselves, but really this all starts in high school. How are we preparing our high school students to be prepared for the fact that the decisions they make with their class choices, with the work that they do, their performance on their tests back then, really could impact the amount of debt that they go into school with, the choices that they're going to make, and, and the steps they're going to take into their future career. So it all really ties in, and really my lesson there is that it's up to you to make these decisions and to get yourself out of the repetitive and, and wasteful and expensive system. They are not going to help you because they want you to be in that system. Okay. It's a business and it is so inflated thanks to the government money that's being put into the system because it's creating this uh, demand that is never going to go away. It's creating this um, supply of money that is always going to exist. And so it allows colleges to boost the price up like, Okay. And so amount of government money going in, cost of college increasing. Wee. I don't think I did that right. Amount of money from the federal government going into paying for college for students. Colleges increasing the cost of college because now the government has said, hey, we'll supply this amount of money. So they're like, okay, we'll charge this much. So then we make profits still. Wee. Woo! <laughs> Did I do that right? Uh, I feel bad for the podcasters. You didn't get to see that beautiful graph that I just made with my hands. Um, all right, though. Let's move on to a little fun stuff with, what do you know, college, campus, culture around protesting. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I want to say first. So my first shock experience, and this is more of like culture war thing, the environment at American was, was so feminine. Uh, it was already a lot of women on campus, but, uh, 
I remember I was dating someone who went to Quinnipiac University and I had stayed at America's campus at Americans campus for so long, months and months. And I, it was the first time I visited, I think it was like at the end of the first semester or in the second semester, the first time I visited my boyfriend and I was so used to the college culture of very feminine males of, of man dressing in, in skirts all over the place and the, the weird outfits and the, I, I mean, very, very feminine males all the time. And also nobody, nobody ever even looked behind them when they would open a door. And so like, you know how like some liberal women are like, I don't want a guy to open a door for me or hold the door open for me. I'm powerful enough and I don't need it. Well, people didn't even like worry about that on a, at American because people just didn't even have the common decency of like looking behind them to see if somebody was even coming behind them to try and get in the doorway. They just didn't care. It was this lack of decent values by these people. And so that bothered me, all these little things. But what was so weird to me, there were so many skirts worn by men. There were so many feminine males that just, just clear betas. And I just got so used to it. I figured that's like college experience. And when I went to visit my, my boyfriend at Quinnipiac, he took, <laughs> he took me onto the quad and I was shocked and looking around like, because it was all these manly men. Like it was all these like athletic men, muscular men, tall men. It, they were manly alpha males walking all around the campus. And I had never seen that scene before. I was like, whoa, my campus is crazy. I didn't realize how unique it was, how wild it was at American versus other schools because I, I just never seen another one. But as soon as I went to a normal American campus like Quinnipiac, which is like really focused in business school and stuff like that, I was like, you lucky ducks. <laughs> and I remember my roommate and I actually went, went to Annapolis, uh, north of DC. Annapolis? Yeah, we went to Annapolis, north of DC, and it's where the uh, Naval Academy is. And again, there's like no manly men on campus or barely any. And so like if there was any, they would really like stick out like sore thumbs. It was kind of funny. There was like five. Um, but we went to Annapolis and we watched this tug of war happen between the Naval Academy boys and their cute little uniforms. <laughs> and um, they would go against the guys in the town. So like the police department, the fire department, the postal service workers, stuff like that. But they were all like pulling on this rope that was across the entire harbor. And they're in their cute little like short shorts and their white socks. Mm. Super cute. Um, but I digress. Either way, the culture at American was like exactly how we see now with the rise of the LGBTQIA, ABCD, E, FG, HIJK, LMNOP, QRS, TUV, WX, YN, Z for Zeggers. <laughs> Can you tell it's late and I just said the entire alphabet out loud? Um, so either way, now it's just like normal for men to be completely feminized. But back then it was definitely a, a growing trend that wasn't really spotted by the mainstream conservatives as like a serious problem yet. And now we're like, oh, what has happened? Um, if Actually, what, what's kind of interesting is there's like science behind the fact that it's because we have these um, – this like estrogen in a lot of the plastics and the chemicals and the fake fragrances of the everyday products we use. And unfortunately the science behind it is that this is not something that's like, Oh, then we'll just stop using them. Cause it's in literally everything. It's in our cars. It's in the, the materials that our houses are made from. It's, it's in every single thing that we touch every day. And, and so it's almost like an unsolvable problem. And the science shows actually Candace Owens, I think did an episode on this. So maybe I'll link that. But she did it with Jackie Daly from the Jackie Daly show um, in Texas. I think she's out of Dallas. And Jackie was talking about how um, the science, the research shows that it's not just happening in, in human males where there's higher levels of estrogen than ever before and it's leading to them being much more feminine. Um, it's actually in all male species. And so frogs had... Um, incredibly high levels of estrogen and, and, and other examples like that. And it's showing that it's, it's literally just because there's all of this estrogen in the products of the world, the products around us that we live in on a daily basis and definitely creepy. Um, and maybe we'll have more scientific things pop up about that in the future. But, um, 
yeah, so that was American, definitely very feminine, woke, all this stuff. But you guys, when it came to politics, of course, American is the number one most politically active campus in the country. So of course, they're going to get all crazy when things happen. So when President Trump won, oh my goodness, they burn the flags all over the quad. Of course, they're going to do that, yada, yada. But what was so interesting is on campus, we had this group called The Darkening. And it was like the Black Lives Matter um group on campus and they would always you know get all rowdy and and riled up whenever something happened and uh yeah young americans for liberty they were doing this campaign around 2016 like early 2016 that um was trying to show the importance of, of free speech and so the idea that we should have freedom of expression so if even if you say things that we don't agree with that can be mean and can be can be um hurtful People should be allowed to say it. And so that was the intent. Their goal was to teach that lesson on college campuses by having controversial speakers. And so I remember at American 2016, I was a freshman, and Milo Yiannopoulos came to speak at a YAL event, and it caused quite the ruckus. Um, so I, again, from upstate New York, have never seen anything political like this. And I wanted to go because I, I had heard all of this controversy. Of course, everybody was getting riled up. And I started Googling Milo Yiannopoulos, and he's done quite a lot in his time since 2016. I, If you look it up, he's got quite the journey, and I think he's like friends with Jared, so it's kind of interesting. But um, at the time, the videos that I was seeing of Milo were, were, were like, what? Because he was saying some really weird stuff, and if you look him up, he's got some controversial takes, but one of them even... Like, they're just weird and silly. Like, I didn't know if he was joking or not, but, like, one of them was that women and college campuses are coordinating secretly against men to make tests easier for women and harder for men, and that's why women are in college more, and that's why women are succeeding uh, in college in terms of, like, the the rates of acceptance or whatever. And, and so I watched these videos, and I was like, he really thinks that? Like, he, he, what, huh? And so it was just this idea of like, whoa, I want to hear him tell the whole crowd this. Like, I want to see what happens. I want I want to hear somebody with these ideas and see how the event goes and everything. And so I just wanted to, to hear somebody say some really weird stuff and, and see if he was joking or if he like actually truly believed it. I, that was my idea, like freedom of expression, literally the lesson that Yal was trying to teach. So kudos to them. But um, I, I was walking into it and, and of course the darkening, um, and keep in mind it was 2016 and so Black Lives Matter was out and about because they only come around around election season. Mm. Um, Black Lives Matter was out, the darkening was there, and they were protesting with their usual chants and everything like, hey, hey, ho, ho. They fill it in, fill in the blanks every time. Um, but it was my first protest. I'd never seen anything like it. And so at the time, Snapchat was really cool. I'm dating myself, but in high school, Snapchat came out when I was, uh, I think, a freshman or a sophomore. And so by when, I, when I'm in college, it was still a thing, but I had like 30 friends. I was not on social media really around the time. And so I took out Snapchat and I, I scanned the crowd, right? I, and I was going to put it on my Snapchat story and I sent it to my friends. And I also had made my family members, like my mom, my dad, uh, my grandma has one. I made them, or my aunt, and then she shows my grandparents. Um I gave them all Snapchat accounts so that I could send them videos of what I was doing in DC, like at my internship on the Hill, all that stuff. And so I wanted to scan and send that to them. And I did. And then I went into the event. It was just as crazy as you would think where like people were standing up and screaming at him and doing the walkouts and the standups and the turnaround and turn your back to him, all that stuff. So the classic kind of viral event that you see on Twitter today where like videos come out after a conservative speaker comes, all that stuff happened. But it was kind of as, as you would expect. He was just as like abrasive and, and kind of crazy as his YouTube videos showed. And it was definitely interesting to see. But the, the thing that stuck with me is that after that, I went to leave the event. I was walking home uh, to my freshman dorm in the dark. Uh, the sun had gone down and uh, the darkening, about 15 of them or so, mostly male, I would say, and, and very tall and they, they came up to me and I was alone and they kind of surrounded me and, and they were like, we saw you. We saw you filming us earlier before you went in. Do you think that was funny? Do you think it's okay to film us when we do 
our work for justice. And they're like asking me these weird questions of like, did I feel right recording them in their struggle or whatever they were saying? And flashing forward to now, it's like, wait, that's exactly what they say. Like now Antifa, you're not allowed to film. You weren't allowed to film in Chaz or Chop. Like journalists were beaten. Andy No gets beaten in the streets. They say they're going to murder Andy No for trying to go into their areas and film the work, the, the insane stuff that they're doing, the dangerous things they're doing. And they say, like, even at the George Floyd Autonomous Zone that exists still, you're not allowed to bring cameras in. They highly suggest you don't. Reporters aren't encouraged to go in there. And it's these people rejecting the basics of classical liberalism and, and the ideas that keep us knitted together as a society. Uh, and so for them to think that they shouldn't be exposed to the public when they're doing their dirty work is quite fascinating and quite dangerous if they think that they should be allowed to operate in the shadows. We are a country that really thrives and survives on accountability on transparency and corruption, wrongdoing, abuse of power, abuse of influence, all of this happens in the shadows. And like we saw with Fauci's emails, what really exposed him is when light was shown on the situation, when the emails were released thanks to FOIA, when the American people were able to see what he was saying in private. And so it's so interesting back then these students on campus were asking me if I felt like it was appropriate for me to be filming them as they protest on campus, how insulting and rude. And, and, you know, I was making fun of them by recording them. And did I feel like it was the right thing to do? They're asking me this in this intimidating way, swarming around me, a college freshman, just trying to get home to my dorm after going to a political event. And, and now today in America, it's commonplace for the left to, demand that they not be recorded, that they not be reported on, uh, because they do, they believe in operating in the shadows. And that kind of, you know, this story kind of brings me to, uh, that moment when I was being surrounded by these people. I'll be honest, I was not outspoken. I mean, now I'm a speaker. Now I do all my political stuff. I like to commentate all these things. Clearly I'm, I have values that I feel free to speak out on. Um, but at the time I was very nervous and anxious and had, obviously conservative values on the inside, but I did not feel comfortable speaking out, especially on a campus like that. Um, and so when these people were surrounding me, they were like, you racist little Trump supporter, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, throwing the usual terms out at me. Right. And I felt so intimidating and I didn't have any allies. And I, I was just like, oh, no, no. Like I, I didn't vote for Trump in the primaries, like blah, 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 because you know, I didn't, I'll be honest, but I was definitely planning on voting for Trump in November. <laughs> so the general was coming up and I was definitely planning on voting for Trump, but they're like, you racist little Trump supporter. And I got so nervous by all of this that I was like, no, no, like you assumed that about me. I didn't vote for Trump. I'm not a Trump supporter. I would be in a few months, but to get out of that situation, I lied, I hid my pro political values, and I just wanted to get out of that situation. And then I again had to walk all the way home alone in the dark. Um, and, and I think about this often of how many students were probably like me at the time and, and don't have the confidence to speak up, don't have um, um, that base, that core support. And I think that really comes from conservatives rallying together on campus. You know, you, you don't have to be insane political activists, but to know that you're not alone is so important. And I'm a contributor to Turning Point USA because I just love the idea that their core mission is to bring people together on campuses, bring students together that just believe in capitalism, classical liberalism, the core American values of freedom and independence. And, and I love that. And I, I support Turning Point because I didn't have the opportunity to have something like a Turning Point when I was at American. And so students ask like what they can do and, and what I believe the first step is just start going to meetings, start hanging out with those people because it's going to be important for you to have allies as things get uh, even more intense and um, aggressive on campus. And so I, I do encourage you guys to do that. I mean, they're always providing resources to start chapters on campus as well. Of course, the liberals and the lefties might give you a hard time because that's what they like to do. They like to prevent it, prevent it and make it as hard as possible for conservatives to organize and gather on campus. But of course, it's like it takes a half an hour to make a, a liberal or a leftist group. Um, but regardless, there's so many great ways for you to start meeting people. And one of them is, is Turning Point USA's uh, campus clubs. So I encourage you to do that. Now, getting into 
the last part of my college experience, I want to talk to you guys about uh, my lovely roommate. <laughs> so maybe you've heard of this, uh, but when I was at school, I moved off of campus into a house with some girls. And I had met some of the girls, but I hadn't met all of them. And so I had to introduce myself. And I went uh, room by room that first day we moved into the house to meet everybody. And I did. I, I met them all. And, and the last room that I got to, I was talking to this girl in the basement, and she was so sweet and, and so kind. And um, she still is very sweet and kind. And we're getting along, we're talking, but I'm trying to look at her and give her eye contact. And I just kept getting distracted by like something I'm seeing over there on the wall. And I was like, uh huh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, and my eye just keeps getting drawn over. And I realized it's because it was quite a fascinating poster. It was a poster of Mao Zedong, Lenin, Stalin, Karl Marx, and Fidel Castro. And the poster said, welcome to the party. And they have these party hats on. And they had fruity umbrella cocktail drinks in their hands. And, and for me, like I, I love history. That's really how I got my values that I have today. My dad never pushed politics. My mom never pushed politics, but they always had me watching the history channel. My dad's in the military. And so we were a very patriotic family. We were rooted in core American values and appreciation for our history and world history. But for me to see men that I knew were clearly bad, right? Those are mass murderers and dictators. <laughs> I, I saw them on in a forum that I had never seen before. And so usually they're in like black and white documentaries or history textbooks, or they're on the history channel. And there's a lot of dead numbers and a, a large tally of how many people they've killed is on the screen. And then there they are in this, this very positive poster of my college roommate. And I, I had no idea what to say. And that was really a defining moment for me in my life and in the work that I do now, because when I asked her what it was, it's really all that I could say of like, what is that? <laughs> and she looked at me right away with the biggest smile and she was like, oh, I'm a communist. And I was like, ah, wow. I didn't know what to say. And so you would think, uh, I don't know, I felt like I was a little Miss Americana, right? Like I was going to school in our nation's capital. I was going to American University. My dad's a colonel. He served in 9-11. He served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. My mom is smart as a tack. I'm, I'm, I'm from this beautiful Americana town. I'm from the Saratoga Battlefield, for Christ's sake. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, like Saratoga Battlefield, Revolutionary War Turning Point. It's all of these things that I, I thought that I was knowledgeable and prepared. And in reality, all that I knew were, you know, simple talking points that I'd maybe heard on the news or, or seen on social media. And I didn't have a solid understanding of any of these things. And that really played out when I was confronted with a communist and I had nothing to say. I had no idea what to say. Um, I specifically had no idea what to say when she was telling me that her ideas would bring equality and peace and justice, social justice and progress, and they would empower the working class of America. And so me, little Miss Americana that I thought I was, I had no idea what to say when I met a communist. And you, you'd think that I would know, right? <laughs> you'd think, I'm sure most of us think we'd know exactly what we would say if we met a commie with mass murderers and dictators on their wall. But instead I was silent and I had no idea what to say. Um, and, and another lesson that I got from her, we would talk quite often because we knew that we clearly disagreed. Um, but I was definitely more quiet in, in what I said because the feeling was that I was still the bad one for being the Republican the Republican or the conservative. And and that was always strange to me, just even in the house with, with the girls, I, I really didn't talk much, but I could clearly tell that I was seen in a harsher light than she ever would have been for being a communist. And it was just because I was a basic conservative. And when I was talking with her one day with everybody there, she, she was explaining, you know, her views on everything. And, and she explained that conservatives are mean. That was her word that she was, we're mean because we say we care about things, but then we don't put taxpayer dollars or government action behind the things we say we care about. And I was like, I see that. I see that, that, that our generation 
views fixing a problem or providing a solution as some major government package, as some massive allocation of government funds. And um, of course, if they see helping and fixing and solutions in that way, then they're not really going to like conservatives. <laughs> um, I, I would I would say there's a lot for us to learn there. But going back to that idea that confronted with this idea that a communist with mass murderers and dictators on our wall is saying the same utopian promises that every terrible communist leader from the past has used and then ultimately have it led to massive devastation and, and deadly results. That's all happening and I had no idea what to say. It, it it was such a disappointing moment for me and I didn't exactly know where to go with it and I struggled with it for a while, but as I graduated from college, I got a job in advertising and I started around, you know, post-grad and in my first job to see the numbers continue to rise because my, my, my roommate was like on the fringe, you know, like the rise of socialism and communism, at least when it like the idea that it's being loved by everybody in our generation, that wasn't really a normal thing until 2016 when Bernie was on the rise. So he really normal normalized and, and brought popularity to the term democratic socialism. And now it's just completely expanded and, and now it's just straight up socialism, right? Um, how quickly things change, right? But um, I went into my job and, and that's when the numbers really started coming out in 2018 once AOC won her primary uh, and new studies were coming out, polls all the time about how many young people were supporting socialism. AOC in June 2018 won her primary against Joe Crowley as a justice Democrat. And I started looking into it. The Justice Democrats were going to try and replace um, Democratic incumbents in primary races. And the end goal for them is really to replace as many capitalist, normal Democrats that are in office and in deep blue seats that are going to be that way for quite a while with socialists. So socialist candidates replacing Democrats in Democratic primaries. And what this does is slowly grows the number of people in Congress that are in the progressive caucus that will advocate for radical policies and actually be successful at getting it passed because now there's actually people in the halls of Congress who have these values and who have the power to get it done. Um, but that happened. The Gallup numbers come out in fall 2020 that start to say that a majority of young Americans would choose socialism now over capitalism. Uh, about 58% by the time I quit, or by the time I started planning, about 58% had said they'd choose socialism over capitalism. And so just really shocking numbers, and it was really on the rise. And as I started to see this trend, I just kept thinking back to my time with my roommate. And that all led to me eventually wanting to reach people who are going to be in positions like I'm in right now and provide them with the basic information that they need to know when they're confronted. Because it's not a matter of if they're confronted ever by somebody who believes in these things and pushes this rhetoric, um, you know, pushes very utopian rhetoric, but the ideas are actually quite archaic and deadly and damaging for a society. Uh, it's not a matter of if we are going to be put in conversations like that. It's just a matter of fact now. We are going to continuously be put in conversations with people who will have mass murderers, you know, figuratively have mass murderers and dictators on posters in their bedroom walls, and then they're going to tell us that they're going to bring us peace, unity, justice, love, progress, all the usual words. And what the heck are we going to say back? What are we going to do back? There's a million things that need to happen, I would say, to fix this problem, but it really does all start with just the general awareness, and that awareness starts with us starting to speak out about it. And so um, with that, you guys, I have got to go because I, I think I've gone over a little bit, but I'll continue these conversations with you guys. Uh, once I got frustrated with my roommate and this idea of like not knowing what to say to her and realizing that it's going to happen on a big scale, of course, that's why I started Young Americans Against Socialism. So you can always go to fightsocialism.org. Um, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Remember to subscribe, follow this podcast, follow me on social media. And if you want a Zegger's Freedom Flag, you can always go to zegersfreedomflags.shop to get a flag, a wooden American flag from my family business. Thanks for listening this week. And I hope you can relate or enjoyed some of my crazy college experiences. I'll see you next week. Bye.